All right, well, this week, I wanna, what I'd like to do is, is just quickly recap last week. I'm not going to go into the whole sermon from last week, but I did want to just quickly review and the fact that some people are offended by Christianity and the Bible and Christians. And the reason is because it puts limits on their lifestyle and there's conviction involved. I don't know if any of you have experienced that. Maybe in your life that when somebody finds out you're a Christian, they treat you different or they assume you're judging them or they assume that you think you're better than them. And a lot of times that's not your fault. It's because you wear the cross of Christ and you represent something that puts a standard in the world which people don't like. We don't, people don't like, we don't like it. I mean, we don't like being told what to do oftentimes, even, even us. And I was talking with some people after the service last week and, and they reminded me, uh, well, what, the, what we were talking about reminded me, even in college, when I first went to college, I went to a state college, kind of like a, a UMKC, and, and there were weekends where I'd be the only one sober on my whole floor, literally. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I would f- I'd find plenty of things to do, and I could find other Christians, and we would do things, but my, my roommates, my, the guys on my floor that I saw interact, interacted with day in, day out, you know, there were times where I, I remember distinctly one time where one of my friends, he was a good friend of mine too, and he got in my face one day and he just said, you just think you're better than us. I said, what are you talking about? I had no idea. I was clueless. And he goes, well, because you won't, you know, party with us every weekend. I said, no, hold on. That's kind of unfair. I'm not getting on your case for that, but then you're uh, on your choice, but then you're, you're criticizing me for my choice. It's like, really, you're thinking you're better than me. <laughs> Because I choose to not do what you choose to do. I mean, we had this little philosophical art, you know, discussion, and then at the end of it, he goes, yeah, you're right, you can do whatever you want. So, oh, thanks, <laughs> thanks. You know, and the next week, I'm pulling him out of the toilet, and, you know, so, I mean, it, it, just understand that there's something out there, and when people are confronted with truth in our society today, anytime you claim to have an absolute truth, that's offensive. It's automatically offensive today. It just... You just need to understand that. Anytime you put limitations on somebody's lifestyle. Another thing I think that is always important to remember with, with anything that is such an emotional issue that oftentimes reason is thrown out the window and everything becomes an emotional argument. And it's very difficult to reason with somebody who's emotionally invested in the issue, whatever that issue is. It's very seldom that you can find somebody that will, will talk about the issues involved and around you know, homosexual marriage they are themselves homosexual, and they will reason about it. Very, very difficult. It's almost as if the issues are too personally held for them to reason. Now, with that said, I, I heard someone once say, don't confuse me with the facts. <laughs> have, you, have you heard that before? And then somebody said, you know, we're all entitled to our opinion, but we don't get our own facts. And the truth is that there's, we should be, as Christians, compelled by love. Now, I know it's easier to just be quiet, it is. But if we really care about people, then there are things that we, we are going to be compelled to say. And I really do believe that love requires that we stand in opposition to behaviors which we know are likely to hurt and kill people. We're compelled. I mean, if you really love somebody, you're going to care enough to lovingly talk about it. Not only that, the moral equivalence issue, I think, is a huge one. Whether that's coming from a political person or a or just somebody you're talking to. Um, I think it's important for us at all times because you have to understand that, that um, there's a redefinition of, of ideas and terminology that is happening. That's where the attack is. And sometimes if the argument is framed in, in certain ways, if you let the other person frame the argument, then you're probably never going to be able to convince them of anything that's important. Now, I know that I'm a bigoted homophobe, no, I'm not. I don't, I'm not afraid, and I, I do love these people. That, and that's the truth. But when you're attacked with that terminology straight up front, I think we need to understand that this, I, I actually quoted these. I wrote down some quotes because I wanted to get them exactly. Um, if you do not endorse the demonstrably false assertion that homosexual sex and marriage are just as healthy, normal, and moral as heterosexual sex and marriage, then you are a bigoted homophobe. And if you dare to defend the millennia-old and culturally, religiously, universal definition of marriage as between a man and a woman, then you're a bigoted homophobe. And honestly, the, the bottom line is it's not really about marriage. It's about 
It's about shifting public opinion about a lifestyle. That's what it's about. And I didn't quote the statistic last week, but the fact is that in, in areas where homosexual marriage is legalized, even there, only about 4% of homosexuals actually do marriage ceremonies. That should illustrate the point that it's not really about the marriage. What it's about is normalizing, validating, and endorsing a lifestyle. And marriage is the one sacrosanct uh, institution. I know some people don't like marriage being called an institution, but that institution, if you can pull that down and redefine that, then you've normalized the other lifestyle. But what it really comes down to is Jesus said. And if you will not submit to the lordship of Christ and what he wants for us, and if your heart is not there, then you would never want to hear the fact that he said, um, a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. it's It's just what it is. And if you don't, if we don't do all of this in love, then it's pointless anyway. You will never convince somebody unless you really love them. And you demonstrate that by consistency, by service, by caring, going the extra mile, being that classic, the real Christian in front of them. Not the Christian they think we are, the bigoted, homophobe, judgmental, not that, but the actual Christian. Uh, I, I would recommend a book. I mean, there's plenty of things you can read on this subject. Frank Turek is a great apologist, uh, famous author. But this particular book deals specifically with this issue. And uh, I can give you more information about that if you're interested later. But now to Corinthians, the full book of Corinthians. Remember, we, remember I talked about how this, there's three chapters that go together here, 12, 13, and 14. And in 12, we, we learned that we are the body of Christ, that each of us have a part in the body of Christ, each of us have a part to play. And then Paul went into a lot of detail about some gifts of the Spirit. And we talked about the fact that it was Christ who gave the gifts. It was Christ who gave the gifts. We also talked about that love is the guiding principle. That's why Paul put the love chapter 13 between chapters 12 and 14, talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And we talked about last week the fact that love is the guiding principle, really, of the entire book. Paul keeps coming back to this idea. If you really love people, then you're going to treat them right. You're going to prefer them. You're not going to sue them. You're going to endure insults. You're not going to claim that you're better than them. You're not going to claim that that your gifts are better than their gifts. If you love people, you're going to treat people different. Love is the guiding principle of this entire book, and Paul ties it directly to the gifts of the Spirit. Directly. Not only that, he says that love is the foundation and the filter through which we can understand how these gifts should work in the church. They're not about showing off. Evidently, the Corinthians were like that, and they enjoyed these showy gifts the most. And Paul said it's not about that. He also pointed out the fact that gifts are great, they're wonderful, but they are temporary, and yet love will endure forever. He did all that. So let's jump into 14. And and just see what it says here. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. What I like to do first, I like everybody to stand in the room who's a prophet. <laughs> no one? Oh, okay. I told you I was going to talk about you. Okay. I'll, you don't have to stand, really. I was kind of kidding because I only expected Frank to stand. Because in our church, as I've been here for a year, I've only experienced really Frank consistently prophesying in church services, in public church services. Now, I don't know about the, the different life groups and what may happen in those necessarily in this arena, but I'm talking about in the church services themselves. I also have only heard a few people actually speak in tongues publicly in the, in the congregation. And I don't know if any of... Anybody here uh, operated in that gift? Okay, a couple people. Okay. 
All right. Curious about that. Let's go on. First thing we need to understand is that chapter 14 is not a how-to manual. The Bible isn't really set up that way. Paul wasn't necessarily doing that. As you remember, what he's really doing is correcting. He's answering questions that were written to him specifically, and he's correcting problems either that were mentioned in letters or that he heard about from people who had been in the church and then reported back to him, hey, this is what's happening in that church, and it's kind of crazy. And so Paul is correcting them. So unfortunately, wouldn't it be nice? I mean, don't we in our 21st century mind, we would love the how-to manual, wouldn't we? This is how church should be. You know, a video clip of one of their services would be nice. Or maybe just a, kind of a rundown. Okay, you do this from here to here and this from here to here. But having said that, we know that, we know that they had some kind of a background that they brought to church. We all do. We all came from somewhere. Either we were raised in a church, Assembly God Church, like this or like some other Assembly of God church. And how many of us know that Assembly of God church is very incredibly in the way they're run and the what's permitted. And I mean, the personality of a church changes based on who's there. All of that changes. But all of us have come from some different background, whether that's a different denomination or like most of the Corinthians, flat out paganism. Now, I don't know. I know that some of us are more familiar than others. Maybe it's been a while since you took Greek mythology or any of that kind of thing. Do <clears throat> you remember hearing about the oracle at Delphi? Anybody remember that? Do, do, I didn't really, you know, I've heard that before, but I had to do some study about what that was. But that actually existed in Corinth at the Temple of Apollos. That was an actual ongoing prophetic uh, thing that was happening. So unfortunately, some of the Corinthians were bringing pagan understandings of what prophecy meant into the church. So it's very possible that as Paul is correcting these things, some of the corrections he's giving aren't necessarily things we're very familiar with. It may not be something that you've seen in church before, but it's very common and it's easy for us to take what we read in the Bible and apply it to our own personal experience. I mean, we're supposed to do that, but we should always do that with the understanding that this wasn't necessarily written, you know, 10 days ago. This was written to a specific congregation answering specific issues. So when we look at these verses and see what he's saying here, we need to find out what it meant to them and then find out the principle and then apply that principle to us, to us now. That's the proper way to take the scripture. So first of all, we wonder if what he was doing in this chapter, if maybe he had a question about how tongues should work or that's perhaps maybe he was even asked, hey, Paul, can you write and tell them to calm down on the tongues thing? Because they've just gone out of hand. It's getting crazy. And Paul, you'll see later, he does not do that. The next thing we need to point out is in those first five verses, he made it very clear that tongues and prophecy, that the point of church services, the corporate gathering that they were doing, was about edification and teaching. Now, edification, what is that? We hear that word all the time. He actually described it. It's the building up. That word edification, the base root word would be the same as the word for edifice which means to build something. He's talking about building somebody spiritually and emotionally. That's what's supposed to happen when you come to church. He also talked about teaching. So that's why you'll see in a little while later, he goes into a lot, a lot of repetition and detail saying, what really matters is what we can understand because if you can't understand anything, then you're not going to get edified and you're not going to learn. So he goes into detail about that. And notice that he kind of refers back to Chapter 12, verse 7, where he talks about the gifts being given for the common good. Because remember one of the problems the Corinthians had? They were selfish and they were just trying to, they thought it was all about them as individuals. And Paul is saying, that's fine in your personal prayer life, but not necessarily in the corporate body. He goes on. It's also about what you can actually understand. What does it mean? How many were raised in a Pentecostal church? How many were not? Okay, that really is helpful to me. We got about half and half here. But so for those of you who are not, I can tell you some of my experiences growing up in a Pentecostal church. Those of you who were, did grow up in a Pentecostal church, maybe you can share some of the feelings I had. How many of you who were raised in a Pentecostal church ever did this when you were younger and you tried to match up the syllables to the tongues to the interpretation? Anybody ever do that? Okay, thank you for your honesty. Three of you for real? That's it. Okay, pastor, thank you. <laughs> okay, how many of you did this? How many of you 
wondered why the tongues was always the exact same thing, but then the interpretation was always different. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Part of the problem with that is when you're speaking in tongues, you don't understand it. And that's what Paul is saying. If we can't understand it, then it doesn't help us. That's why it's so crucial to have the interpretation. And that's why Paul emphasized, I would rather you prophesy. Skip that middleman, just get right to the what we can understand. That's what he said. He's saying this is more important. What that gives us is a window, a picture into what was going on to that church. And we wonder if it might have been tied somewhat to paganism in the sense that now, again, you know, most of us have never been involved in pagan worship, but maybe you've seen it in the movies or maybe a missionary video where where someone who is prophesying under the influence of, you know, we know the American Indians, Indians use peyote to prophesy, have a spirit guide walk or whatever. We know that some religions get so hyped up and in dancing or whatever that they're in some kind of an ecstatic state and they're babbling or prophesying, right? Can you imagine how somebody walking into the Corinthian church or even one of our churches today might wonder if that's what's going on here? Because if all they see is someone speaking in tongues and it doesn't make sense to them and it it sounds like babbling and they look like they're in some kind of a trance, right? How would they not know any different? And so what Paul is trying to do is clarify the fact that, yes, tongues are important, tongues are good, they're helpful for edifying and building up you personally, but they don't help the whole church unless it's interpreted. So he goes on. Let's read more. Now, brothers and sisters, if, you, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Now, I told you he's going to be very repetitive here because he's trying to drive this point home. It's kind of like, remember when you were in school and your teacher said, if I say it like three, four, five times, it's going to be on the test. This is what Paul is doing. He's doing it over. He's pounding it into them. If I can't understand it, it's not as helpful. So he says, even in the case of a lifeless things that make sounds, such as a pipe or a harp, how will anybody know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Unless there's some type of melody, what's the point? I can't understand the song. He says, again, if a trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. That word foreigner is, is actually like barbarian. It's the root. Remember the Greeks were so arrogant that the languages that the foreigner spoke sounded like babbling to them, so they called them barbarians because that sounded almost like the way they thought the, their language sounded. So that's that word he's saying there. If you were a barbarian to the speaker, and the speaker is a barbarian to me. So it is with you, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit. See, he's encouraging there. He's saying, since you're eager for all these gifts, remember they were all wrapped up in how important these gifts were, try to excel in those that build up the church. Building up the church is the point. Of course, a flute and a harp are common in Greek society. The trumpet, they were familiar with that. This whole verse right here is what the, the whole point of the chapter is about. Eager, you're eager for the gifts, good. Then desire the gifts that actually build up the church. That's what he's trying to get across here in this whole chapter. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they might interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit. I also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I love how Paul does this. He inserts himself again personally into the story and says, look, don't get the idea that I'm down on tongues. I speak in tongues more than all y'all. I think it's all y'all is in there, the Greek. (laughs) But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Again, tongues, he mentions, I speak in tongues, but my mind is unfruitful. What Paul is trying to say here is he saying that this is a supernatural thing. You don't necessarily, your mind doesn't know what you are saying. 
and the amen without understanding. The idea is part of the edification is that we as the body of Christ can agree with what is being said. Now this agreement, I love, I was, how many grew up in a church where there was a lot of amens? Okay. Sometimes I am a little self-conscious about that because if, if you do listen to the, uh, the, video, the tape, sometimes you'll hear me saying amen because I sit right here and somehow it gets picked up on pastor's mic and I'm thinking, man, that guy, he would just let the pastor preach. But you need to understand that this, this amening is, is not, didn't start with the church. This is something that, you know, you think about it for a minute. Remember I mentioned that, that the Corinthians came in with all their religious baggage from wherever they came from, pagan or whatever, and we have done the same thing, whether we came into the church from, you know, the Assemblies of God or grew up Catholic or wherever you came from, you come with a religious understanding. But even if you've been to a, a bunch of churches, you'll notice there's a similarity in the way church goes, haven't we? We pretty much all start with singing, right? Of some kind or another, whether it's corporate or individual, we have some scripture reading, someone's going to preach, take an offering, right? All this stuff happens in churches. And maybe you weren't aware of this, but the early church, they pretty much patterned the way they did church, just like the early uh, Jewish synagogues did. Pretty much the same thing. And what they did then is pretty much what we do today. It's pretty similar. But the amen part is a Jewish thing. Paul is saying, because they, they would do that in their synagogues. If somebody were to say something profound or interesting or encouraging, they would say, amen, which means so be it, or I agree, or yes, my brother, right? Preach it. Get, get <laughs> Carol said, or get her done. All right. Hadn't thought about that, but all right. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Paul again comes with that parental correction. In regard to evil, be infants. Be innocent as infants. But in your thinking, please be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and, th and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, I will not listen to me, says the Lord. Or they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, Paul grabs a, pro, he, he grabs a piece of scripture out of the Old Testament and he applies it to this situation. And he says that tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Has anybody been confused by that verse? What? It does? <laughs> okay. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and, and, and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Okay, now this is for those of you who grew up in the Pentecost. How many of you wanted to invite a friend to church? <laughs> what, what am I going to say, Sheila? Said you were scared to take him because you just wanted to see your Well, that, and I thought, God, if I bring him, can you please not let that thing happen today? Okay, how many, honestly, thank you very much. Okay. Because you didn't want them to think you were out of your mind. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. <laughs> thinking like children. Let's go back to that. Paul corrects them a little bit. Stop thinking like children. Now, what is he referring to? I'm pretty sure what he's talking about here is the way that they were using tongues. They were, they were thinking it was a way to show off or show how spiritual they were. Or, hey, listen to my prayer language. Don't I sound like I'm speaking Japanese? I don't know. They were childish about it. They were selfish about it. They thought it was about them. They had no concept of the fact that it's not about them. It was about God speaking to the body and edifying the whole body. So he's saying, grow up. Don't be like that. And how could it be a sign for unbelievers? What does that mean? Well, here's something to think about. This is something just to twist your mind around for a minute. When you read a sign for unbelievers, probably like me, you usually think, well, a sign for unbelievers would be like, well, in the book of Mark, it talks about all Jesus' miracles being signs, pointing people to salvation. But what if sign for unbelievers doesn't mean that here? 
What if the sign was, it illustrates to the believers that there's something spiritual happening here and they don't know what that is? What if the sign isn't something to convince them to become a Christian, but the sign is, hey, there's something spiritual and I'm out of the loop on that? Sign can mean different things. So when you talk about tongues being a sign, it is a sign, but it may not necessarily be the sign that you want it to be, which is what I'd like is for everybody to be get, become a Christian, right? That's what I want everything for people to see. I want them to see Christians in action and fall on their knees and want to be Christians. That's what I want every time. I want them to walk into a church service and be so amazed by the warmth and the spirit and everything that's said that that thing turns them to Christ. But what if instead it's a sign that, hey, you're not part of this and it's something going on spiritual here. And it makes them kind of check and say, whoa, I didn't even know this existed. What is this? Maybe that's what the sign part means. And the out-of-your-mind part, if you can just imagine, I know I referred to it a minute ago, but if you can imagine this church where in, in, in a few verses later, Paul's going to give them some restrictions and say, look, only two or three at a time. So what if they were all just going nuts praying in the Spirit? And for someone coming from the outside, they're like, what in the world is going on here? I mean, it could be amazing. Just a, just a, you, they would think that that we were out of our minds because that would be the pagan background that they came from because oftentimes the prophets in their pagan uh, Greek temple worship background were out of their minds. Either they were hopped up on some kind of you know, mind-altering substance or just had worked themselves into the frenzy or possessed by a, a demon or some kind of weirdness. That's what they th thought, and Paul is trying to distinguish that type of worship from true worship and Christian worship. So here's the part I love. How cool would it be? Or how cool should it be? Or shouldn't it be this way all the time that people walk into our church and they're just blown away and they say, wow, God is there. Shouldn't it be that the worship that they encounter here, and I'm not talking about just the singing we do, but I'm talking about the spirit as the spirit moves and the gifts of the spirit are in operation, that people say, whoa, God is here. Either because they see somebody healed, whoa, that's real, I saw it. Or maybe someone prophesies and reads their mail. Okay, now, those of you raised in Pentecost, how many of you knew when they had a prophet come to speak and you were afraid they would call you out? <laughs> oh, Lord, he's looking my way. <laughs> All right. But what if that was happening and that person heard something that totally radically was personal and no one else could possibly know? What are they going to say? Wow, God is there. That is amazing. God is there. We need to have that here. That needs to be the kind of a routine thing. It shouldn't be like it was, you know, as I was growing up, like, oh, God, please don't let sister so-and-so. Right? It should be God. I'm going to buy my friends because... God is going to show up, and they're going to be blown away. That's, what, that's, that's the way it needs to be. That's the way it should be. So Paul goes on. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. What Paul does here is he shifts now and he's talking about how order should look in the church. How many have ever had someone come up and say, I have a word for you, brother or sister, if that's appropriate? Anybody? No one? Okay. Now, I, I don't know of anybody in this church like this, but I have been in church before where it's always like the same person and it's always weird. Okay? I've had that happen. And I can just imagine this church in Corinth where he's saying, everybody's got this, everybody's got this, we're going to sing this song, and there's all this confusion about who's in charge and how it's supposed to work. Paul is trying to deal with that, and he says everything must be done so that the church may be built up. He keeps drawing them back to that. Don't forget it's not about you. What if they don't sing my song? What if I don't get my word read? What if I don't get a chance to do my tongue or whatever? It's not about that. It's about the fact that the whole church needs to be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, here's where he kind of gives them the order, two, or at the most three should speak, one at a time. <laughs> I still laugh every time I read that because I just think, well, what kind of place was that? It was crazy. 
Now, we don't have any of these corrections to the other churches. And that's not to say they didn't have similar issues. Maybe Paul took care of it before he left. Or maybe they had a pastor who helped figure this stuff out for them. We don't know. All we know is that this church needed some help. And then he puts another restriction. Someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. All right, again, did you want to say something? Are you? Yes. Who's the interpreters in here? I know pastor is. Marsha, Frank. Don't you speak in tongues publicly sometimes too? I don't always want to look around like, hey, who's that? You know, who did that growing up? Come on. <laughs> You're like, okay, thank you. Okay, so that's part of it, Dave. I think part, there's a lot of things going on here. Again, this was not as big a congregation as we have in this room right here. They knew each other probably better. Yes. So, so actually that's not saying don't give the message if there's no interpreter. That's saying if you don't have somebody operating in, the, in that gift, then there's no need to give a message at all. If, right. If Right. If you're not going to interpret it yourself or there's not a known interpreter, okay. don't say it. Because he's saying if people don't understand, it doesn't edify the body. So don't do it. So in this context, it appears that they would know who there had the gift of interpretation. And if here's something else to see in this. <laughs> they didn't have to give it. Do you see that? Now, I know none of you are like this. But I know people who move in the gifts, and they think they know everything and when it should happen, and everybody just needs to alter everything for their gifting. And that doesn't seem to be what he's saying here. He's saying that they could hold on to that for them and speak to himself and to God. That's interesting because I haven't seen that kind of humility in some people who have not none of no I don't know anybody here like that. I'm, and I'm serious, but I'm not kidding. Yes, sir. I don't know about that. I well, I don't I don't think so because he says if no interpreter is there, so that would imply that that there are some people who have that gift, and if they weren't there, then that person should hold their tongue. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. In a re- if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Isn't that interesting? Think of that dynamic. That if God is speaking to different people who have a, I think I have a word from God, and the other person would stop. You don't see that happen very often, right? And then let the other person prophesy. For, for you all can prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Which kind of gets to my point earlier. That, you know, it seems like at times people feel like they're, they're bursting and they got to say it right then. No matter if it's, you know, in the middle of something or maybe at, at a, maybe not the most effective time in the service perhaps but that doesn't seem to imply this for god is not a god of disorder but of peace and is in all the congregations of the lord's people he's talking about order and worship we already emphasize this two or three at a time in order check for an interpreter subject to the prophet I wanted to mention this about revelation i had a really good friend right out of bible college who started writing songs and played piano. And remember one day I, we were talking and, and um, he said, I want you to hear this song. I, I think it's from God. I said, okay. You know, and he played the song and he said, what do you think? I said, that was great. He goes, no, no, no. I, I think it's from God. And I wasn't picking up what he was saying. I was just, it was, it was good. I mean, it was, it was good. I, you know, and he said, um, I think it's revelation. And so Again, I wasn't cluing in. I thought he was talking about, like, the book of Revelation. I'm thinking, 
I didn't say anything about end time. I was totally clueless because I had no idea he would think this is what he thought. I mean, I don't going to go through the whole conversation, but this is what he thought. He thought that literally this song he had written was on the same level as scripture, that it was the kind of revelation like God gave to John and Mark and Peter. And I'm like, oh, no, really? You really think that? You know, and, and then he got offended, and it was like, oh, well, okay, <laughs> don't ask me again if you don't want to know what I think. But here's the thing. That's not what this means. We're not saying that as somebody here prophesies, because what did, what did Paul say just earlier in, in chapter 13? We know in part, we prophesy in part. And when we're supposed to stop and judge the prophecy, we're not judging the prophet like in the Old Testament where if they made a mistake, remember, they had got stoned and killed. That's not what we're doing. In a lot of this, it's something that we as Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ work with each other. We endure each other's mistakes. It should be a safe place to experience God and hear from God and be submissive to a pastor who guides and directs us. I, we were camping this last weekend, and I, I missed, I understand, I heard all about the end of the service and how God was moving and prophecy. I mean, that was really cool. And this is a place where that should happen. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that something said in that context is the same as, you know, reading something in Scripture. That's not what Paul was saying. Women should remain silent in the churches. Carol. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Frank, you need to help me here with this, okay? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) she said good luck, and then he said good luck. All right. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. This is an interesting scripture and an interesting place in this section of three chapters. You need a copy of that? Take home for your wife? Okay, it's, it's in your Bible, actually. So let's start with this. What is Paul responding to here? What is he what issue is he addressing? Because don't forget that in chapter 11 verse 5 Paul assumed that women would be praying and prophesying in the same book in the same church. So is he really going to 3 chapters later say I don't want him to say anything? What is he saying? I mean he's saying something but it's not <laughs> maybe what you think. That is one good theory. The what? Oh, right. What is the context of this entire section? Order and worship. He's trying to keep things in order. Okay, it's very, very possible that what Sheila said is... And that's very possible and true. We know that the way they did church was women on one side, men on the other. We know that women mostly didn't have access to education. So if they had a question, who are they going to ask? Probably their husband. And if they're doing it during church, and if there's all this other chaos going on, it's imaginable that you might have people yelling, hey, what, did that, what was that? I don't get that. What, you know, that could be happening. That's possible. Another thought, though, to think about for just a minute is the cultural description. Is this a cultural description or is this a universal prescription? Well, it can't be a universal prescription because in chapter 11, he said he assumed women would be praying and prophesying in in the church. So it can't be a universal prescription. So it must be something cultural that we don't necessarily know all the details about. And again, we're limited because... Paul is, is answering questions, and he's dealing with issues and problems. And it's not encyclopedic in the sense that he says, this is how I want everything to work in every church all the time. That's not what he's saying necessarily. It could be this. Now, I didn't know how the, the oracle at Delphi worked, but this is how it worked. You would go see this. You would pay an offering of some kind, and then you would go in to see the oracle, and you would ask her specific questions usually personal questions, and then she would answer you in a prophecy of some kind. Now, remember a couple verses back where Paul said that, we were, that after someone prophesied, you're supposed to weigh the prophecy? So what some 
scholars say is it could be that, that in this church in Corinth, they were letting some of the paganism creep in, and in that pagan temple environment, it would be a Q&A kind of a situation where they would be asking questions back and forth with the oracle. But that's not what we're dealing with here. Paul is trying to draw a difference between the way the pagans did this and the way God does this. It's not, it's not as if we're asking our, you know, a prophet, say Frank prophesies, we're not going to say, well now Frank, did, did it really mean this or was it meaning this? That's, that's how the pagans did it with this oracle. But the oracle isn't getting their information from God. When we're prophesying, we're not prophesying as a result of a question we've been asked. We're prophesying because the Holy Spirit has led us to prophesy. There's a difference there. So it could be that that is simply what Paul is saying is, don't go back and forth asking all these questions back and forth. That's not what's supposed to be happening now. If you have a question, ask your husband later at home. It's difficult to know exactly what they were talking about. And it could be about education and location. Not sure. But to summarize here, therefore, that's how you know a good writer or orator is closing up. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. That's it. That's the point. Order in worship. Notice a few things. The congregation was involved in this worship. Did you notice that there was no definition? I mean, we know that men and women both prophesied and prayed. There wasn't professional clergy and laity. See, that's, there's not that separation there. Did you notice also that um, clergy would be like pastor, professional pastor, and someone who's laity is people who just come to the church. I want to ask you some questions, Crown Point Corinthians. This is for us now. Think about this. Whether you were raised in Pentecost or not, I have a few questions. What gifts are missing in our church? Think, think about it for a minute. Do you think God intended it in a congregation our size to just have a couple people who speak in tongues publicly? I mean, we never have to say, wait, 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 wait slow down, one or two at a time. Right? And I'm not saying we need to do that. That would probably be disorderly in our society. I don't know. I'm, not, I'm just saying that have, this is a rhetorical question. I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, but I'm curious. Have any of you wondered or felt or thought, I wonder if God's calling me to do that? I know growing up in a Pentecostal church, I say, God, please don't call me to do that. <laughs> Speak in tongues publicly like that. And we'll get into some of those reasons in a second. Yes, Shirley. Mm-hmm. Okay. She said that there were times she could have given an interpretation, but fear came on her. She quenched the spirit. And when, when the prophecy did come forth, it's exactly what God had given you. But let me ask you some questions about that. Do you think perhaps God is calling some of you to a different or, or a deeper experience in the Spirit, in the gifts of the Spirit, than what you've experienced now? And is there a reason that that's not happening? Because I'm sure it's not that you don't want more of God, right? I'm sure it could be more like what Shirley had mentioned, maybe some fear. So I have some specific questions. Why do you think that maybe you've resisted that? Now, notice the Corinthians, they had an opposite struggle from us. They all wanted the showy stuff, right? And then we are trying to kind of hide out and let other people do it. Is that part of it? Maybe we don't think we're worthy. Maybe we'd get it wrong. How embarrassing would that be, right? Maybe, maybe you're wondering what people would think, or, or maybe, like I said, you leave it to somebody else because you know Frank will take care of it or pastor will jump in, or we know God works with somebody else that way. Have you ever wondered why we don't have any teenagers doing that? Or 20-somethings, or 
Because I bet you what's happening is for most of them, they've just relied on the adults that are doing it. And maybe they haven't been encouraged or challenged with the thought that maybe God wants to use you. So here we are. Yes, Larry. Well, what I'm saying is this, Larry. I agree with you. Anybody could. In fact, Paul said eagerly desire these gifts. What I, what I was saying is, I don't think everybody does, but I think they can. I do agree with that. But I don't think we've been seeking these gifts like Paul has told us to seek because either we're afraid of them, they make us uncomfortable, maybe the chaos of it is scary, maybe we think we'll be wrong, maybe we're thinking we're not spiritual enough. Right. And my personal opinion is that um, having grown up in church, in <coughs> I feel like we've missed something because maybe, just perhaps, God is speaking to each individual about their gift so that the church can operate in wholeness. Good point. And incomplete, like a body, like it talks about. So I think there might be other gifts that could make our church more complete. Maybe we don't even know what's missing because we're not. <laughs> It's a good point. And this speaks to, to also, Larry, to what you're asking in that in chapter 12, uh, Paul is very clear that, that God gives those gifts to us. And he gives us in the right balance, in the right order. And it might be, just like Sheila has said, we don't necessarily know an exhaustive list of gifts. And maybe we haven't sought those gifts from him. And we don't even know what he wants us to do or operate in or be. or And, and maybe, you know, Larry, maybe we don't all need to prophesy or all, I mean, I believe we all could. And he, he says to desire that gift and seek after it. And he says that he speaks in tongues more than anybody else. I believe that we can all have those gifts. But I also believe that God is calling us to some of those gifts. And going back to chapter 12, and I know I, I mentioned this when we talked about chapter 12, but I wonder, just like Sheila said, how many of the gifts of the body of Christ are not operating? And what are we missing as a body of Christ because either we're not willing to, or like Larry, you said, we're not seeking and asking for those things, and we're not desiring them the right way, and we're not asking him to fill us with those things, and what are we as a church missing because of that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Because we haven't seen it or grown up with it, you mean? Oh, I agree. And, and, here's a, and you know what? Even some of my background, I think there's times where I've seen it abused or misused. And I remember being in church and thinking, that lady is speaking in tongues, but she is so mean. Now, how does that work? Or, <laughs> we're running out of time, but I was in sixth grade and we went through a church split. And it was ugly. And my distant cousin of mine had a dream. The pastor was having an affair. She was so disturbed by it, kept having this dream. She went and talked with him. He told her he, she could never step foot in the church again. How dare you? And, you know, we didn't even know that it happened yet. <laughs> and I remember sitting in church, and one of her daughters started speaking in tongues. And then one of his daughters started speaking in tongues and kind of yelling at her and I remember sitting there as a sixth grader looking, this is weird. And I remember my mom just like put her head down and started crying and just grieved that people would do this in a church. And I think that plays into it because we've seen it misused or not. We haven't seen it always properly. How many times I wonder has this happened where even on a Wednesday night or a Sunday, we're at a point in worship where 
there should be a prophecy or something. But not always. But maybe there's times where, what if on a Wednesday night at a point like that, you know, I were to say, I really think someone should be speaking out and you're feeling that. I just want to encourage you to be open to what God would want to do with us, with you. And for what purpose? To edify this body, to edify the body. That's the whole point. And it all should be done in love. All of it should be done in love. Edify means to build up and to, to grow you up. Let's, let's do this. Can we do this? Would you guys all please stand with me for a moment? Your emotions, your spirit grow you. Can we have some worship for just a second? With your heads bowed and your eyes closed for just a moment, I want to ask you a couple personal questions. This is, these, again, are rhetorical between you and God, but are, have there been times where God was maybe calling you or you've, you wondered, God, are any of these gifts for me or is this just for everybody else? If you've had that thought, I want to tell you what Paul said. Eagerly desire these gifts. They're for us as a church. They're for us to edify us as individuals. I firmly believe that there are things missing from our body because we haven't opened ourselves up to what God wants from us. So the next question is, are you available to him for that? Are you walking with him? You don't have to be perfect for God to use you. That's the beauty of it. Just like Pastor said, he takes us and finishes that through with us. He takes us to the place where we need to be. So in this moment of quiet, just between you and God, can we just ask him for a second? God, what do you want from me? I want a deeper relationship with you, a closer walk with you. Dare you even tell him, God, if you want to use me in one of these ways, I'm open to that. Don't limit yourself to even tongues and prophecy right now, but even some of these other gifts that God has, that Paul mentioned and like Sheila reminded us, there may be even others we're unaware of that aren't mentioned there, but, but God would like to use and give to this church to build this church up, whether that's serving or faith or miracles or healing, tongues, interpretation, wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy. Just spend a minute and talk to him about that.